What is the record of investigations and commissions of inquiry when it comes to holding Israel to account for its conduct towards the Palestinian people? Is there reason for optimism that Israel's impunity may be coming to an end? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute interview program on current events, policy questions, and new ideas. I'm Moin Rabbani, and for this episode, we're delighted to be speaking with Lori Allen, whose most recent book, A History of False Hope, Investigative Commissions in Palestine, examines these issues in historical context. Lori Allen is a reader in anthropology at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. Her work has focused on Palestinian society, politics, and history. In addition to A History of False Hope, she is the author of The Rise and Fall of Human Rights, Cynicism and Politics in Occupied Palestine, also published by Stanford University Press. Her articles have been published in various academic and news journals, including American Ethnologist and Middle East Report. Her most recent contributions include the ICC in Palestine, Reasons to Withhold Hope, and This Time May Be Different, on the UN Commission of Inquiry, investigating violations in the occupied Palestinian territory. Lori Allen, it's a real pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you, thanks for inviting me, I'm glad to be here. As, as detailed in your book, A History of False Hope, there's a long history of investigative reports and commissions of inquiry examining the situation in Palestine, going back to at least the 1920s. What have been the common features and outcomes of such investigations? Yeah, um, first, I mean, the, the conclusions that I draw are also in a way kind of the premise of the whole book project that commissions of inquiry are a really fascinating lens onto Palestinian political history in a transnational frame. And you know, they reveal a picture that often that runs contrary to a lot of the standard histories and polemics about Israel-Palestine that normally report and condemn Palestinians' refusals to agree to bad deals for partition of their country or um, you know, for partial autonomy. But this history of commissions really shows that there have been a string of Palestinian efforts to proffer democratic solutions to the so-called question of Palestine. You know, how many today know or could even be induced to believe that Palestinians had detailed plans in place for a democratic uh, Palestine with constitutional guarantees for equal citizenship for all in the country, Jew and Arab. And that was in 1919 and that was in 1946. And there's really little record of the Zionists and Westerners refusals to agree to these democratic solutions. Now, although it isn't really the book's main purpose, A History of False Hope is also a chronicle of these refusals and the liberal excuses that have been given for them, right? Mm -hmm. so, so first thing, it's kind of important to understand that I examine the history of investigative commissions in Palestine in their social context. You know, I'm an anthropologist. And in a way, I, I don't even examine their reports so much. I think those are sometimes the least interesting aspect of these commissions. So I look at them in these commissions in a more kind of dynamic and ethnographic way. And I've observed a huge variety of people um, who have interacted with these commissions. And in my book, I'm trying to analyze these dynamics 
around six main investigative commissions from 1919 until basically today, and how Palestinians and their advocates have um, tried to make their political case to the international community via these commissions. And, you know, this has included everyone from official political representatives and lawyers, political prisoners, NGOs, human rights activists, um, to regular unaffiliated people, right? Um, fishermen and farmers and housewives and grandfathers, all kinds of people have been brought into the orbit of international legal discourse via these commissions. And, and that in a way is one of my main conclusions that these commissions reassert to lots of people the primacy of international legal systems as a means to justice in Palestine. Um, and in repeatedly bringing a wide range of Palestinians together to try to convince the international community that they deserve independence, that they deserve individual and collective rights, in doing so, each commission has excited a level of hope in international law, in liberal systems, and in the international community. Um, you know, there have been varying levels of hope for sure, um, but there is still always some kind of hope that this time might be different, that the powers that be might finally listen to reason, that they might finally offer a just solution um, that recognizes Palestinian primacy in their land. And each time these hopes have been disappointed. So one conclusion is that international law, these liberal systems on their own, are simply not sufficient for achieving justice and may be in fact a hindrance. Um, if I could talk for a minute all about another kind of important premise of the book. Please do. Yeah, yeah is that the, these investigator commissions are a kind of staging of international law and the liberal values on which international law rests. You know, the commissions are not officially legal, but they are very legalistic. They, they might not have courtroom standards of evidence, but they do involve legal experts, they often include judges, lawyers, and they involve presentation of evidence. So in the early commissions that I look at, uh, this evidence involved arguments around Palestinians' political standing, their political worthiness about you know, whether they deserved even an independent nation state. And then more recently in these um, investigative commissions that often the UN has sent, the evidence has been more around Israel's violations of Palestinian human rights and the possible commission of war crimes. So keeping in mind how these commissions stage international law, how they kind of perform these liberal values uh, of democracy, ideas about rights, the value of reasoned debate and balanced views, right? Keeping in mind this international legal liberal framing what I argue is that these commissions have continuously re-excited faith in international law as an objective system that might help resolve the conflict with Israel. You know, that, that international law might be able to stop the settler colonial project that Israel is. And what's interesting, I think, is how these commissions and the international legal system manage to repeatedly and continuously spark new hope despite the fact that Israel's military occupation and settler colonial expansion you know, has only ever become more entrenched. They still spark a faith in liberal systems despite the system's abject failures. Well, I, I think many people, when they look at the title of your book, um, probably the first uh, um, issue that comes to mind, or the first commission that comes to mind is the UN Fact-Finding Commission after 
Israel's 2008-2009 assault on the Gaza Strip, the first large one after disengagement, also known as a Goldstone Report. And perhaps we could talk about that a little more um, as an example that illustrates uh, the points you're making. And and I would then like to move on um, to a few more historical examples. For example, the uh, the King Crane Commission and the Anglo American Commission of Inquiry of 1946, which you also discuss in detail in your book. Right, yeah, thanks. So yeah, the UN fact-finding mission um, investigated the 2008-2009 fighting in the Gaza Strip. Um, you know, some 1,400 Palestinians were killed in, that, uh, in those attacks. It issued a report, a huge report of some 450 pages and it analyzed multiple events, violent incidents, uh, and concluded, and I've I've got a quote here, that some of the actions of the government of Israel might justify a competent court finding that crimes against humanity had been committed. Um, And so this report- Citing the report. Yeah, so that was in the report. So this report was controversial for all kinds of reasons. but it did focus quite heavily on war crimes and forefronted anti-impunity as a theme in its recommendations. And I think this, and I think I show in the book that this really did buoy Palestinian faith in international law once again, Um, you know, because the, the report spurred increased calls for criminal punishment of Israeli violations against Palestinians. But of course, here we are more than a decade later, and Israel continues its abuses, violations, colonialism, and as events, this recent events in May have highlighted again, you know, residents in the Gaza Strip continue to be stuck in an open air prison, sitting ducks under under Israeli attack. Um, So, you know, this was, I think, a turning point in some ways among the commissions that I've looked at because it really did forefront this language of international criminal law, which maybe we'll come back to in the conversation. Um, But nothing came of it once again, except for a lot of controversy. I I remember very much the optimism and and hope that accompanied the initial release of the report before, of course, um, uh, Judge Richard Goldstone uh, recanted and basically disavowed um, his own work. And I'm curious if we look at more historical examples like the 1919 King Crane Commission or the 1946 Anglo-American Commission of Inquiry, whether you see um, similar processes at work there of of an initial upswell of hope um, followed by essentially a political legal vacuum. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the so the King Crane Commission um, of 1919 came on the heels, you know, the end of World War One, um, and it's a really good example, I think, of how much effort has can go into presenting a unified and convincing message to a commission to the international community. And, and if I may, to- perhaps for for our readers, um, also explain um, what exactly this uh, this commission uh, was. Yeah, so, so viewers the, rather. Yeah, viewers, re- hopefully readers too. Um, so this commission came as the Paris Peace Conference was debating, you know, what to do with the world after the end of World War One and the end of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, 
And US President Woodrow Wilson dispatched the King Crane Commission to find out what the peoples of the Middle East wanted for their future government. And it was intended to guide the peace conference in assigning mandates. Um, and you know, some at the time really thought that it heralded an end to Western imperial ambitions in the region. And in, you know, it, it may seem ridiculous now, but it seemed at the time like there was there was good reason for people in the Middle East and elsewhere to believe that the Americans might in fact respect the wishes of the people, since they, the commission and Woodrow Wilson kept saying that they would, right? Um, and the main message that the King Crane Commission heard was that the majority wanted independence in a multi-faith united Arab nation of greater Syria, including Palestine, with a democratic government under the constitutional rule of a monarch, or if they were going to be forced to be governed by a mandatory state um, that is under the League of Nations, they wish to be under its you know, very explicitly temporary tutelage. Um, and although these were you know, early days in the Zionist takeover of historic Palestine, there was a growing recognition among Arabs in Palestine that their hopes for an independent nation state could be threatened by this rival vision for a Jewish ethno-national polity in their land. So they also opposed Zionist takeover and presented that opposition to the commission as well. Um, and you know they used the, the, the language of the day, the, the language of romantic nationalism of the day, um, referring to the fact that it was an Arab land, Arab culture, people united by Arabic language and so on. Um, so, so just one thing that I want to impress on, on viewers about this commission is, it, you know, it was really so amazing to find in my research how widespread was the excitement across Palestine and beyond that this commission prompted in people. People really were debating and arguing and planning how to present their political demands to the Americans because they really thought they were going to be listened to. And you know, there was so much anticipation and excitement um, about this that there was a weekly and sometimes more than a weekly newspaper article in the Arabic press from the time that the commission was announced in I think April of that year throughout and, and following the commission's travels throughout the 120 day journey that it made. Um, and in each place, the commissioners heard a very unified message of what the, the Palestinians and the Arabs wanted in the way of a democratic state. And in fact, um, you know, there were mixed views among the people involved in the commission, but the report eventually did reflect a lot of that um, conviction about Arab and Palestinian national identity and, and national demands. However, in this particular case, the report basically didn't see the light of day. It was, um, it's not really clear if Woodrow Wilson ever saw it. He became ill, he was preoccupied with losing his battle for <laughs> the League of Nations. Um, and it was essentially shelved, this report. It finally, I think, was published um, by a newspaper in, sometime in the, in the early 1920s, but... Only then. But only then, yeah. mm. um, yes. And, and Arabic, uh, Arabic newspapers also published, published it as well. Mm. But it had no effect on the ground. And as most of us probably know, what actually happened was that the British were given the mandatory power over Palestine mm -hmm. and they governed historic Palestine with a view to mm -hmm. producing a Jewish national home. 
I remember which, very clearly um, one, one statement from the King Crane report, which was an interview with a British officer in which he expressed the view that um, Zionism uh, could only be implemented in Palestine at the point of a British rifle, I think, were, were his uh, exact words. So, you know, we had the King Crane Commission, all these great hopes, um, then, then the profound disappointment, or rather um, uh, it's, it's death in a vacuum almost. Yet 30 years later, um, this time in the aftermath of World War II, 1946, you have the Anglo-American Commission. And I'm wondering, was there kind of the same hope and expectation and excitement among Palestinians um, about uh, this commission and, and right. what were its uh, results? Right, yeah. So yes and no. I mean, there had been an intervening um, couple of decades in which the British, who were famous for their use of governmental commissions, had repeatedly sent investigations to Palestine, you know, to find out what all the fuss was about. And repeatedly, they found the, the facts of the matter. And those facts were repeatedly ignored. And um, the British continued to support Zionist colonization. So by the time we get to the Anglo-American Commission, there is some recognition that yet another commission might lead to nothing. In fact, there was debate among Palestinian representatives about whether or not to go ahead and present. But because of um, some people's view that the Peel, uh, the Royal Peel Commission that came in 1936, that Palestinians had initially boycotted, um, there was some feeling that the, the late entrance into that commission game had led them to make a poor showing. There was a lot of effort in 1946 to present a very coherent and thoughtful um, set of demands to the Anglo-American Commission. So there was, again, a huge amount of investment in this. And the people who organized the presentations had, you know, again, made... Um, demands for a democratic Palestine. They referred to liberal values, to values of rights. They presented, um, I think, a, a view for a constitutional country, again, that would respect Jewish minority rights in the country. They presented even the outlines for a citizenship law. So um, they made these in incredible presentations. But what we see when you look into the, the details of how these how the commissioners in fact received this material, they received it through largely racist and orientalist lenses. And instead of hearing these um, very carefully thought out um, positions for what a democratic Arab Palestine might look like, the commissioners heard intransigence or the boring old story, right? And, and, and they kept demanding that the Palestinians or the Arab representatives take a more balanced view and pay attention to the fact that, you know, this was the end of World War II and there, were, there was a huge catastrophe of Jewish displaced people across Europe. And so the commissioners were pleading with the, the Arabs to take this into account and let more Jewish people into the country. And you know, the Palestinians and their representatives had really good arguments about the fact that the catastrophe of the Holocaust was a European problem and should be solved in European and American territories. Despite that, um, despite this, you know, kind of basic 
um, understanding of the political situation, there were also really sincere and repeated expressions of sympathy for the conditions of Jewish people at the time. There were Arab leaders who were offering um, Jewish displaced people to come into their Arab countries, but to not settle the problem on, pal on Palestinian land because it would shift the demographic balance. And so Palestinians made a good presentation. The commissioners listened and didn't listen and issued a report, the main aspect of which, the main point of which, the main recommendation of which was to increase with a huge influx Jewish immigration into Palestine that would further shift the, the, demographic, um, the demographic balance towards the Zionist project. So here again, yes, there was huge disappointment. I think it was, um, I can't remember which of the people I write about, but there was a, a, a diarist of the time who reports uh, when, he, when he received this report, you know, he was inflicted with a migraine and everyone, or that might've been the Peel Commission, but you know, in, in all cases, you know, these folks had invested so much, made really reasonable arguments and again, for not. Well, before fast forwarding to the present, um, just listening to, to what you've been saying, it does raise the question about the motives behind all these investigations and commissions of inquiry. And, and based on your research, um, is it your conclusion that these were genuine exercises to get to the bottom of things and propose resolutions? Or were they intended as a method of political pacification or something else? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it depends a little bit which commission we're talking about and who we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So in the case of the Anglo-American Commission, the um, one of the kind of themes of my book is the, the real sincere hopes of liberals and liberal people on these commissions. And there were folks on the, the King Crane Commission who really were sincere liberals, really did believe in Woodrow Wilson, who could offer independence to, to the Arabs and did believe that their commission might in fact offer that. There was opposition to the commission from the beginning from the French and the British who were not at all prepared to give up their imperial ambitions in the area. So I think, you know, there, there was- it was a mixed bag. Um, with the Peel Commission of 1936, this came very explicitly in an effort to um, quash the energy behind the Great Arab Revolt of 1936 to 39, which was um, a transnational intifada, basically, against British rule and against the Zionists. And so the Peel Commission came in as, as an effort to assuage that. And in fact, um, you know, it did quiet things down for a little while, but when that commission recommended the partition of the country, giving you know, lot, it, it, the, the revolt continued again. Mm. Um, and then again, with the Anglo-American Commission, I think that the commissioners themselves were incredibly dedicated to the idea that they could come up with a balanced solution that would um, give equal weight to the suffering of the Jews and to the Palestinian, uh, the Arab political um, aspirations. Well, that, that takes us, I guess, to the present because as, as you well know, a few months ago, the International Criminal Court in The Hague um, concluded 
that the Palestinians do have standing and that it would continue um, with its investigation of what it calls a situation in Palestine, including, of course, Israeli conduct in the Gaza Strip and so on. Um, a few days later, uh, you uh, published an article basically echoing um, the themes of, of your book. Um, and I was curious why, why you felt at the time that once again, um, hope was being invested in a process and a framework that may not lead to much of anything. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, first I wanna acknowledge that, um, you know, an important thing about the ICC is that it has jurisdiction over the most heinous crimes, right? Mm -hmm. And this decision about territorial jurisdiction, I think it was, it understandably raised again some hope that Israel might finally be held accountable for its violations for the, mm -hmm. for the commission of war crimes. Um, but the point I was making in that article is that, you know, the ICC has a very sketchy track record in Palestine and elsewhere. Um, there's a really Except great Africa. <laughs> well, <laughs> especially Africa, right? So th there's a really great article by uh, a legal scholar named Tor Krever. He wrote it in 2014 in, I think, the New Left Review. And he discusses the ICC's supposed political independence um, and how it is really belied by its actions since its establishment. And there has been widespread criticism of the court's racism, especially under its previous prosecutor. Um, you know, the tens of people who are currently listed as defendants um, in ICC cases are all related to uh, contexts in Africa. So that should give us pause. Yeah, and some it's also people worth call it the International Criminal Court for Africa. Yeah. Exactly. Now, I mean, with the incoming of the, the current um, Fatou Ben Souda, the prosecutor, the current prosecutor, um, you know, things have shifted a little bit, but um, it's worth noting that her tenure comes to an end in less than a week. And it took from 2019 until today in 2021 for the ICC to decide that it has jurisdiction in the occupied Palestinian territory. And the incoming ICC prosecutor is a British lawyer, Karim Khan. Um, and I think Nura Arakat made some really important comments about how um, in the election for this latest prosecutor, Khan was favored by Israel and the US, so that should give us pause. Um, the chances that he will even investigate Palestine may be slim. If an investigation does happen, it, it could take years. So while the ICC has validated to some degree what human rights NGOs and other researchers have been proving for years, right, that Israel is committing grave abuses, probably war crimes, given the history of the court, given its very slow um, machinations, whether individual Israelis will end up in the dock um, remains a big open question for me. And I mean, I'm not holding my breath. There's an interesting um, historical anecdote here, which is that the incoming ICC prosecutor, Karim Khan, is the grandson of Mohammed Zafrullah Khan, who was Pakistan's permanent representative to the United Nations in the late 1940s, and gave what many consider to be the most eloquent condemnation of the proposal to uh, partition uh, Palestine in, in the General Assembly debate in 1947. So it'll be very interesting um, to see whether uh, 
the grandson in any way um, continues that legacy, or as you indicated, having been the favored candidate of Israel and the United States, whether he chooses for an entirely different approach. Yeah. Um, finally, yeah, finally, Lori, um, I'd, I'd like to um, turn to your most recent publication. Um, this month, you uh, published an article, I believe it appeared on Mondo Ice um, a few days ago, in which you took into account not only the decision by the United Nations Human Rights Council um, to uh, launch an ongoing investigation about the situation in Palestine, but you also looked at the broader political and historical context in which this uh, resolution was adopted. And I think many people who will have read not only your book, but also your previous article about the ICC um, that we just discussed, would perhaps be a little surprised um, and in some ways also satisfied that you of all people are now <laughs> expressing cautionary hope and optimism about where this might lead. And I'd be very interested to learn um, your thought process and, and how you came to this conclusion and, and whether that means that perhaps um, after this interview concludes, we can start holding our breath. <laughs> right. No, it's, it's a good question. And I don't know, maybe I'm just in a better mood. <laughs> it's allowed me to, to have a more optimistic view of things. But in fact, it's not so much optimism. Um, although the article does read that way, as it is a, a plea, actually, for us to think about how these commissions and international law generally function within very specific contexts, right? And, you know, it's interesting to think about an earlier ongoing commission that was set up in 1969, which I refer to as UNSKIP because it's just got such a long name, uh, but it was an, um, a, a, a special committee that was set up to investigate abuses in the occupied Palestinian territory. It still exists, I believe. It or not. still exists, and it has issued a report every year since 1969, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, nobody really pays attention to that committee as far as I can tell. They did at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it is also a standing committee. And what was important about that moment was that this came, you know, in the 60s, 70s, after the UN General Assembly had admitted um, as members many formerly decolonized uh, peoples, <clears throat> excuse me, and the, <clears throat> the nature of the United Nations and the General Assembly, excuse had, me. Had begun to, uh, <coughs> had begun, if you need to take a sip of water by all I, means. I do, I think I inhaled a bug. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, so, so the, the complexion, if you will, of the UN had shifted and the, the weight of third world or global south solidarity had, had shifted. So again, there was a lot of kind of faith um, or investment in that commission and it did issue very damning reports and it did make waves, you know. Um, um, the Americans were very disturbed by how convincing Palestinian representatives and other advocates had become. So, so it's interesting to compare that moment with this moment and, and maybe learn some, some lessons. And the, the reason that I thought about this commission in different ways is because of the context in which we see not only the shift of the ICC maybe, 
where maybe um, evidence will finally lead to um, actual holding people to account. We also see an ongoing BDS movement that has, I think, just gone from strength to strength in um, convincing people and organizations to stop their complicity with Israeli occupation and settler colonialism. Uh, in this latest bout of um, violence in May and Israeli attacks in Gaza and Jerusalem and elsewhere, we saw huge outpourings of solidarity. The, the kind of demonstrations in London were out of this world. They, they were happening in Greece and you know they were happening everywhere. There is a sense among some people, I think, that there is a shift in the political discourse and popular discourse about Israel. There are more and more analysts kind of noting that it is becoming more and more difficult for those who want to shield Israel to do so because their rightward shifts and their shifts towards fascism and, and ever more blatant racism is becoming harder and harder to stomach, at least for, for liberals. And so it's within that context, as well as within the context where we see bubbling up of Palestinian unity across the Green Line and as always from from the diaspora and in exile, um, you know, maybe it's a perfect storm in which the results of this commission, which I can't imagine being anything other than an objective reflection of the facts on the ground, which show how horribly Israel is oppressing and dispossessing Palestinians, might be able to be taken forward. But it has to be in that broader political context of a political movement. I was really struck when I was studying the, the commissions for my book, how often there wasn't really a plan for what to do after the report came. By the um, Palestinians. By the Palestinians. I, I explicitly asked somebody who was involved in presenting to the Mitchell Committee, which came in, in 2000 after the Second Intifada began. I said, you know, so you put all of this effort into presenting things and you made a really good showing. And the commissioners that I talked to were actually incredibly impressed with the Palestinian presentations. Um, and I said, so what was your plan to do? What was your plan next? And there was a shrug. Um, so that's a problem, right? I think there's a, sometimes a, an investment, such an investment in kind of winning the legal argument that there is not enough of an investment, a political investment or mobilization in what happens next. Um, yeah. No, so it's a very interesting point and just listening um, to to you on on this uh, last part of the interview, you seem you seem to be suggesting that the problem in the past is that these commissions have taken place within a broader political context dedicated to the achievement of initially Zionist and later Israeli state objectives, and and um, you now seem to be saying that tide may be turning, however partially. And because of that, um, uh, these commissions could then lead to results, consequences, whatever you want to call them, that were, for political reasons, unavailable to them previously. Is that a accurate reading of, of your position? Um, it's probably a slight overstatement of my position, and slightly more optimistic than I would put it. 
I guess what I'm trying to say is that this commission, along with all of the other kinds of things going on, could be brought together within a broader mobilization. Mm -hmm. And the evidence that this commission will surely bring um, can be another drop in that bucket of, of finally maybe turning the tide, as I think is the the um, oh that's the other aspect of this of this moment, right? That we've got multiple reports from uh, human rights and other organizations showing Israel as an apartheid state, and that language of um, identifying Israel as an apartheid state is becoming more common among even politicians. Right. So. Um, this this commission will show that again and some more. So then our question is, what do we do with that? How do we? Right. And in other words, the focus should be not only on on ensuring the report properly reflects reality, but also, as you indicated, preparing for what to do with the conclusions of such reports once, I think once so. they're published. I think so. Yeah. Lori Allen, thank you very much uh, for joining us on Absolute this episode pleasure. of uh, Connections. It was an extremely um, insightful conversation and uh, very much hope uh, that the history of false hope could be coming to an end and that we may be transitioning to an era of real hope. Thank you once yeah, again. I hope so too. Thank you, Maureen.